Okay, we're back. And we're back. Seeking Wisdom is here. Are you ready to set it off, Adam? What are we talking about today? I'm ready. I like that because I'm like, we're back. All quiet and then you bring it. We're talking about the sixth lesson that you wish you knew when you were younger, which is prioritize the biggest rocks each day. And I love the second part. Feel no guilt if you never get to the small rocks. Oh my goodness. I love this one. This is a great one. So this is, we've touched upon this a little bit in some very, very old episodes. And this is something important. Don't forget, if you're listening to Seeking Wisdom, if you're a new listener, if you didn't listen to the old archives, to go back to the early archives of Seeking Wisdom and listen to some of the classics. We used to call this, back in the day, we used to call this digging in the crates. What we meant by that was the early DJs in hip-hop would spend a lot of time trying to find beats and samples by spending lots of times digging in milk crates. And those milk crates were filled with old albums. And so they would go in different houses, go in different locations, go to different people's houses and dig in the crates all the time to try to find the best beats that no one else had found before. So if you want to find the gems that you may have missed in the past, some of our best episodes, some of our classics, go dig in the crates find those early Seeking Wisdom episodes, and you'll find one that was where we covered the book, The One Thing. And that one thing, it really shaped my mind. That's a book that we would give out to everyone uh, who joined Drift from the very, very early days. And the idea behind The One Thing is very similar to the ideas of Stephen Covey. If you read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about big rocks and small rocks, and the idea that if you took a large jar and you filled it with rocks, you could fill the entire jar and think about the jar as your day, right? You can fill the entire jar with tiny little pebbles, you can even sand, right? So those are tiny little small tasks. Or you could fill it with big rocks and then fill around the big rocks with tiny, tiny pebbles and sand if you had extra space. And the one thing talks about this in a different way and says like, look, the most important thing to do each day is to think about the one thing that you can do each day that will have the biggest impact, that will move you further towards your goal than anything else. And sometimes that one thing can take five minutes and sometimes it can take many days, but like that's how you prioritize your day. It's kind of the anti-pattern to uh, checklists. Where checklists, and, and one of the things that for me, was a problem using checklists and using every type of software, a manageable paper checklist, all these different systems, planner, checklist planners, all these different things, was that by definition, if you put something down in a checklist, that everything that you put down feels the same priority because it takes the same amount of space, right? So like something super important, and yes, you can label it and you could give it priorities, you can do all this fancy stuff, but really each thing that you're putting down really is of the same size and weight. And that fools you into thinking that if you spent all day checking off things on your list, that you were somehow productive, where all those things might be things that did not move you further towards your goal at all, but they were things that felt good because you checked something off the box. So to me, it's important to go away from that pattern, right, of prioritizing that way and to prioritize only the biggest rocks each day, like in the Stephen Covey example, like in the one thing example. And for me, that's all I think about. And I was talking to someone recently and they were telling me about, you know, all the things that they had to do each day. And then they asked me, oh, okay, how will, how do you prioritize things each day? And I was like, 
actually, you know, I only, I only focus on one thing each day. And so I wake up the night before I think about it in the morning, I think about it as well and think about like, what's the most important thing I need to get done today. That might be in the scope of work. It might be in the scope of life. Like it's just one thing. I don't have one thing per life, one thing per work. I just think what is the most important thing that I need to get done today that is going to move me further towards the goal that I have set for myself for that time frame. And that's how I prioritize. That doesn't mean that I only do one thing each day. It means that that is the only thing that I care about and that I have any, anxiety is the wrong word, but put any pressure on myself to make sure I complete. Then once that thing is addressed, and I try to address that as quickly as possible in the day, if possible, sometimes that's impossible. Sometimes that happens to be a meeting or a call that's scheduled later in the day. But I fill the rest of the day with other smaller things that you know, I need to get done or I feel like I can fit into that space. It's a very different way of thinking versus thinking of I have seven things to get done today or I have 10 things to get or three things. I only have one thing. And it kind of releases that anxiety, that guilt that you give yourself when you have this long laundry list of things to do in a given day. And it's been fundamental, I should say, for me, this big change. I mean, it's been the impact that I've had in my career since I started to move this way versus focusing on lots of little tasks and checklists and stuff like that has been massive. And so it's something that if you're listening to this and you're not doing this, I would suggest that you spend some time experimenting to see if this can be a more effective pattern for yourself. So what are the counter forces? Like, is it, is it just guilt? Is it, what, what is it that prevents us from doing this, even though we kind of know we know logically that this is a better way. What prevents us from actually doing it? I would say one, I don't I don't think that everybody knows that is this is a better way. Like I think it it is it's obvious when you talk about it or, or it's at least logical when you talk about it, but I don't think it's how most people think because it's not how most people were taught and it's not the current way that we reinforce the idea of productivity in our culture. And so I think we have created a cult of productivity. And as many books, there are some books, I will say, that talk about this, like The One Thing and Drucker and Stephen Covey, like we just mentioned, but there are probably, you know, a hundred times more books, hundred X more books, especially more recent books that talk about productivity, talk about checklists, talk about getting more things done in a shorter amount of time, right? Everything from Checklist Manifesto, which is a good book, but for our work week and all of these productivity kind of guides, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of these books. I think that is the current thinking and current thing that people are talking about in our culture. And I think this is very different. This is going the, the opposite way, not thinking about productivity, but really thinking about impact and leverage. And those are very different things than productivity. Can you talk more about the guilt aspect, like the feel mm-hmm. no guilt if you never get to the small rocks? And specifically, I'm curious, what if there's another person on the other side of that small rock? Uh, there often is. Right? You have kids, I have kids. And so, and you have people on your team and the same for me. So there's almost always someone else on that other side, right? One, I will say it's not easy. Nothing is. Nothing is easy. It's simple. The concept is simple, but it's not easy. There's always someone on the other end who's going to be pulling for your attention. But I think that is the point. It's not supposed to be easy. I think that is another, you know, along with productivity, another false kind of idea that we have that's popular now is that things shouldn't be hard, that you shouldn't go through discomfort, that you shouldn't go through this, that things shouldn't be painful, shouldn't be 
difficult that if they were right, if you were doing it correctly, then it wouldn't be painful. I don't believe that. I think a lot of things are going to be painful. I think feeling this guilt that you get from the this idea that you may be letting someone down is real. And I don't think it gets necessarily any easier. I think as you continue to focus on your big goals, big rocks, and you get closer to knocking off more and more of your big goals, then you can have that to kind of counterbalance in your own mind and say like, okay, I am making something visible. I'm making massive progress towards the thing that I think is most important. And so I think for, at least for me, that helps somewhat, but I think on the day-to-day, not getting back to that email, not getting, not checking off that, that small task that maybe someone else is waiting for, there's an incredible amount of guilt that's associated with that. And I think we have to wrestle with that. I wrestle with that all the time. And I won't say it gets any easier, except for when you're making progress towards your goal. Yeah. How do you set that expectation with the people around you? (laughs) You know, I mean, how do you, how do you say this to them directly without hurting feelings or making it clear what your big rocks are and this dynamic of how you work? Yeah, I think the the easiest way and for me is to do this has been that that I make sure that I'm not only that my big rocks go across all parts of my life, right? Whether it's professional, personal, emotional, physical, whatever all the dimensions in your life, I make sure that I'm constantly rotating my big rocks across that. You know, if I only was focused on one dimension, let's say work or physical and abandoning everything else and never giving any priority to those things, it'll be a very hard discussion to have, you know, with people to set that expectation. But if I ebb and flow and I'm able to, you know, one day prioritize on this big goal that I have professionally, and then two days later focus on this big goal that I have personally or from a family standpoint or physically, then I think people are more understanding. I I think this idea that Every day, again, like that I don't believe that every day has to perfectly balance and you have to do all these, hit all these major goals across every dimension in life is kind of impossible. So I think you can spread it o- over time. And if you use day as a day as a unit, you can one day focus on this, next day focus on something personal and then vice versa and keep cycling through and keep ebbing and flowing, which is a more natural pattern. Yeah, it's funny. Elias and I were having a, a conversation about this just yesterday. Oh, funny. Given in the we're in a weird time right now with a pandemic and everybody's got extra stress at home. And, you know, sometimes it's like picking up my daughter is like the big rock of the day. Totally. And it should be. That framing of everything's kind of in one jar versus these separate jars. You know, mm-hmm. The rocks and the sand and the pebbles kind of makes sense. Uh, absolutely. And so it should be. You should that should be a priority one time. But if that was always the priority, that would also be a problem, right? And so like it says ebb and flow and life is supposed to ebb and flow. That is the natural pattern. And that is the the pattern that I try to follow here. Can you talk about how you've built this into the culture at Drift as a leader? We have this principle, innovate, don't Mm -hmm. invent, which I think it kind of comes from this lesson. How have you really thought about bringing this to the culture that we have at Drift? We've tried in in a number of ways. One of the mantras that we tried to force early on and I tried to continue to and and even recently I've been interviewing a lot for some senior positions and and we talk about this idea of 
every idea, this mantra that we have, which is like that every idea that we have is wrong. And so that's something that, you know, we try to instill or I try to instill pretty early. And the idea is that basically to accept that every idea that we ever have is wrong by definition, right? And it is wrong and it is either 1% wrong or 100% wrong. It's somewhere within that spectrum. And our job is to try to figure out and iterate and try to learn and get and develop a feedback loop so that we can figure out how wrong we are and we can find the right solution. So the reason that this is important is because it's trying to reinforce that you can't sit around by yourself and believe that you're special and that you're going to develop some idea or ideas that are perfect when they come out. And one of the things that it forces you to do beyond starting with, without going through the feedback loop is before you even start that what you do is try to rely on history. So we look at people who have done this before, who have maybe had similar ideas, who have executed in a similar space and may have executed on it successfully or unsuccessfully. And we try to learn from them beforehand as a hack towards uh, shortening the feedback loop. So that's one thing that actually happens as a side effect of this idea of that our ideas are always wrong and we have to go into feedback loop. Before we go into the feedback loop, we try to force ourselves to learn from history. Another thing that we do at Drift is that we've started with this idea of that everyone within the company is a learning machine, and we reinforce this through having internal talks from guests who come in, having an internal book club, talking about books a lot. This kind of podcast kind of manifested from that idea. And what you're doing when you're doing that and reading books is that in books that have nothing to do with the domain that you're in is reinforcing again that you're not special, that you can learn from history and you start to see patterns of where things like the thing that you're trying to tackle have been tackled before. And I'd say the, the last thing, but there are many other things that we do is we talk a lot about a decision-making, psychology, how that affects our decisions. And again, that kind of pushes us towards a place of the thing that we're trying to work on now might seem special in this context that we're in or new. But if we think about it from the human standpoint, from the human decision-making standpoint, it pushes us back again to learn from history because those patterns haven't changed. Right? The technology might and the implementation may have changed, but the way that we make decisions and what we need and what we're looking for when we make a decision to do something as humans hasn't changed, again, forces us back to learn from history. Can you say more about how you pick the other domains that you want to learn from and then the questions you ask when you're doing that? I know your boy Charlie Munger <laughs> talks about the domain dependency problem a lot and how we get stuck in our own domain in this crazy way. Can you say more about how you how you do that and how you think about which domains to look at and how you integrate those other domains? I'd say it's kind of like an anti-pattern for me. It's I don't sit beforehand and think about I want to learn X, Y, and Z, and so I'm going to find other domains where they've learned something similar or gone through this this issue. What I do is I find other domains that are interest me, right? And points in history, characters in history. I'm really geeking out on Andrew Carnegie right now, which is a whole nother podcast, which is just an aside, but I'm really geeking out going deep on, on him. But like, I'll find figures that I find interesting. I'll find time periods that I'm interesting. I'll find just entirely new categories of ideas or 
of topics that are interesting to me, and I will start reading those and spending time there more from an enjoyment standpoint. When I do that and I go across those things, you'll observe that the same patterns appear throughout all of all different contexts and time and events. And then it's there that I start to do this thing that we, we talk about, this kind of like processing and synthesizing across. And then I can see, oh, wait a second. I wasn't necessarily looking towards reading, let's say, Andrew Carnegie's uh, biography to solve this problem that we have now. But I'm picking up things here because he went through something very similar from a human dimension that might apply, might help me in this thing that I'm thinking about here. So I hope that makes sense. It's really like you're not screening in the beginning. You're learning from other people and other time periods in history. When you do that, you'll see the thing that we talked about, which is the human, the way that we make decisions hasn't changed. And because of that, you can see some patterns in the past of choices and then side effects or effects that happen from it. And you can start to apply those to the things that you're struggling with today. I love that because it kind of takes the pressure off. Right. Versus thinking like, I have this problem, I better go study these certain domains, you get to just start from curiosity of, oh, I'm interested in, you know, 17th century history, or I'm interested in architecture, or I'm interested in how, you know, stand up comedians built their craft, right. And you could go study any dimension and then start to see kind of forward how those apply into the situation you're in. Totally. As long as you're open-minded and you're looking for it, right? You're looking, you can see it. And I love, again, I'm geeking out on Andrew Carnegie. And one of his first quotes that I was reading in his book was that he said, he was talking about the steam engine and basically, you know, investing in that area, which is an early area that he was focused in. And he said, the thing he said that really stood out to me was that, that he knew not one thing about steam engines. But he chose to study the more complex and more relevant topic, which made all the difference, and that is studying people. That is how he succeeded in that industry, not knowing one thing about steam engines. Love that. Love that one. All right. What else do you want to share about learning from history? Anything else that you want to leave the listeners with today? The most important thing for me is to get through to your thick skulls and mine that we have to learn from history that there's nothing that you're facing that someone else, probably lots of people have faced in an entirely different time and context. Learn from those people. Don't do what I did, which is learn through brute force and pain and have to learn everything firsthand. Go out there and learn from them. Be better, be smarter because of that. Go out there. You're not special. You're not a snowflake. Someone else has gone through this before. Get it through your thick skull. You can do this. And while you're thinking about that, don't forget to leave a six-star only rating for your boy, boys in this case, with my boy Adam here. And you do that by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. Hit subscribe if you're not subscribed already. Leave a six-star rating. Leave a little note there about a book that you're reading or some way that you're learning from history and teach me something so that I can get smarter here. All right, six stars only. The universe is only six-star podcast seeking wisdom, and we're back. We love those six-star reviews. We read every one of them. Thank you, everyone, for leaving those for DC, and hopefully Apple will get that bug fixed. I don't (laughs) know what's going on. Boom, we're out.